Well, good morning again. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House. I want to welcome you all. Uh, welcome to the gathering of a church. A church. What is a church? Usually we think about church in terms of what churches do. Churches get together on Sundays and they sing songs like we just did. They hear a sermon like you're about to. Um, churches fellowship. Usually when we hear that word, we think about getting together, getting to know one another better. Usually it involves food. If you're really committed, you might even go to a small group, study the Bible with a small group, read your Bible during the week on your own. Right? Or if you're really, really committed, you, you might even be in leadership or go on mission trips to other places to share the gospel. But that's what a church does. And those things are good. And churches should do those things and other things as well. But what is a church? And I think that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the very beginnings of the church. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's the only book we have that describes the beginning of, of the church. And you can go ahead and start looking for the book of Acts either on your phone or uh, in, the, in the Bible there underneath uh, your chairs. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1 that you just heard read. My hopes for this uh, series is, one, that we would be inspired, right? Be inspired about what the church is, what the church does. My, uh, my, uh, my hope is also that uh, we would be in, in, instructed in terms of our identity <laughs> who the church is, and then we'll find some things out about what the church does as well. Partly why I want us to be inspired is that many people, especially in the U.S. right now, not all that interested in church, don't really see much value in the church, especially if you're a millennial, you millennials, most of you in this room, right? The dates that I use for millennials and, and, you know, different articles you read, different dates, but I always think about 1980 to 2000. If you're born between 1980 and 2000, so 1980, uh, if you're born in 1980, you are, some of you, some of you know Caleb Maycheck. He's, he's born, I think, in 1980, and he's married, he's got kids, and, and he works as an electrician at uh, the high school. And then 2000. So that's my daughter, Kayla. She's born in 2000. So that spectrum is most of this room, okay? And when you look at the interest in church, in Christianity, in America at least, you see about two out of ten millennials that would think that the church has some value. That those in the church that have grown up in the church are leaving in droves. About 60% of millennials that grew up in the church are no longer part of church. That millennials really are the least likely generation of all time in the U.S. to be engaged in church. But when you look at those millennials that are actually engaged in church, you see something interesting. Almost 90% of them read their Bibles multiple times during the week, and would say that the Bible is God's Word. 
They read their Bibles more than their parents. They read their Bibles more than their grandparents. So I think what God's doing is he is raising up a new generation and one that has a genuine faith, perhaps that like we've never seen. And I think the book of Acts can inspire even millennials to engage in the church. And certainly those of us that were born a little bit before 1980, like me. Again, it's, it's also going to help us with our identity to understand who we are as a people. If we're a team, we need to know what kind of team we are. Right? Think, think about Bill Belichick going into the Patriots locker room and saying, you're a team. And Brady raising his hand saying, well, what kind of team are we, coach? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe we're a football team, maybe a soccer team, a cricket team. I, I don't know. But we're a team. I think sometimes we're like that in the church. It's, a, it's like, we're a team. We're a family. But what are we? We need, we need to know. We need to understand our identity. And so we're going we're gonna to be discovering that in the book of Acts. And then instruction regarding what we are to do. And we're going to see all those in these 11 verses that we'll look at today. So go ahead and look at with uh, Acts chapter 1 with me. Um, verse 1. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So even in these opening lines of the book of Acts, we see uh, both what the church is and what the church is to do. The church is to be this Christ-centered community, right? A crucified, risen, Christ-centered community. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. That's what he's talking about, this former book that he had written. And that former book, guess what it was about? It was about Jesus. Not only was it about Jesus, but it was about Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. In fact, it's one of four Gospels, all four of those Gospels in the same way with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the church is to be centered on the crucified and risen Christ. He even gives a a brief, like, gospel in a nutshell there in, the, in verse 3, where he says he presented himself alive, right? After his suffering. That's the resurrection. That's the death on the cross. He begins his book about the church by talking about the crucified, risen Christ. And so because of his crucifixion, because of his resurrection, he now reigns as king. And so we also see this talk about kingdom, the kingdom of God, that, that Jesus is, is king. He's king over all things. He is king. He's head of the church. The, the church in, in, in Acts was so centered on Christ that they ended up being called Christians, Christians. In the church of Antioch, they were given that name. It was, 
Uh, I don't think it was a positive name <laughs> when it was first given, but they just took it on and said, yes, you're right, we are Christians, because they were so Christ-centered as a church. And I think this is important for us, because even globally, and definitely in the U.S., there are many churches that are not centered on Christ. They talk about Jesus, they even open the Bible and read it, but they're not centered on Christ. They're centered on the good life. And they seek to use Christ as a means to get the good life, whatever the good life is in your mind, whether it be wealth or power or marriage or 2.5 kids or a second home or whatever the good life is. Many a church, both, both in the U.S. and abroad, is preaching the gospel of the good life and not centered on Christ. And so we, we need to hear uh, this important truth about the identity of the church, that we are centered on the crucified, risen Christ. There's a hint already in these opening verses of what the church is to do. It says that Jesus chose apostles. Even the fact that he named his 12 disciples apostles. He shifts from calling them disciples to calling apostles. Apostles literally means sent ones. And so there, there's this missionary kind of, of, of vision already in the book of Acts, literally just from this name of the apostles, the sent ones. If, if I were to give you a, a, you know, a, a an office in the church, a, a position in the church, and said, the, we're going to call your position is, you're a sent one. That, that indicates something about your role, that you are to be advancing this kingdom of God. The, the crucified, risen Christ King is sending out missionaries to extend that kingdom. Now, how, the, how does that kingdom advance? Right? We're going to find that out as we go along here. It says, verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here they are, they're getting their first command from the resurrected King Jesus, and the first command is, wait. Isn't that interesting? You would think they, they, they've seen the resurrected Lord. They know the, about the cross. They've been given this, this position of apostle, the sent one. And you can just kind of see the urgency there. Let, let's go, let's go, let's go. We're sent, let's go. And Jesus says, wait. Wait for what? Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit. That the church is not only Christ-centered, but is filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he mentions, uh, when he had explained this to them before, actually John the Baptist had, had explained this to them before, back in Mark chapter 1, we read, he preached saying, after he, this is John the Baptist, he comes, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So he reminds them of that truth. See, I told you, you were going to get baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean, right? This word baptism, this, this word baptism means immersed, right? This being deluged by the power and the presence of God Himself. And so Jesus is letting them know that you cannot be sent out. You cannot be on this mission of advancing my kingdom until you've experienced this deluge of the presence and the power of God. So not only are they Christ-centered, but they're, they're spirit-empowered, they're spirit-baptized. Uh, now, he mentions that this is a response to a promise that the Father had made, God the Father. You see the whole trinity involved in these few verses. John 14, verse 16, Jesus says this to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because he neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So Jesus, before his, his death and resurrection, had taught them that you are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You're going to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. He was with you, and he has assisted you, but there's going to be a shift after my resurrection, and the Holy Spirit's actually going to dwell uh, in you. And that this is initiated by the Father. This is, this is a little glimpse into the Trinity. We don't know a lot about the inner workings of the Trinity, a lot of mystery there. But we do know that the Father has a, a role of, of having an authority in that Father, Son, Spirit uh, thing that's going on there. And so He's initiating this by, by sending the Spirit and making sure that the church has the power that the church needs to advance the kingdom. Now, that helps us understand uh, identity, right? That we are a Christ-centered, we are a Spirit-filled or Spirit-empowered uh, church. And that's done for us so that we can advance the kingdom of God. But still, it's unclear. What, what does this mean to advance the kingdom of God? And the disciples themselves are confused, and they, they asked this question in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's almost as if Jesus is, has been begging them to ask this question. He's been talking about the kingdom, 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 kingdom. And finally, I was like, okay, when's the kingdom coming? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, the only category they have is that a kingdom is a plot of land and some people and a human king that resides over it. That's all they got, only category. So that's what they're thinking. They're thinking plot of land, Israel, people, the Jews, and human king, Jesus. And they're all going to be his cabinet. And, God, and he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And it makes sense, right? This is, this is the only category that's existed up to this Point. And we can still see this, this, this category, right? We see the president of North Korea and the president of the United States going back and forth about who has the bigger button on their desk, right? Who has the more military power that can protect their particular plot of land and can advance their plot of land, right? We, we see this today. And so this is, this is the only category that the disciples really have. And uh, King, King Jesus uh, says this, 
in verse 7, he says, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. There it is again, that the, that the Father is, is calling the shots. The Father is initiating this redemption of the world, and He's, he's, he's letting them know that this thing that they long for, which is like this material restoration, is, it is going to happen. That God's going to bring that thing about that they desire, but it's not now, right? And it's way bigger, we'll find in these next verses, than the kingdom of Israel. So here's what he says to follow up that comment about whether or not they're going to restore the kingdom. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So he's saying, now is not the time for the complete restoration of Israel or of, of the universe. But what it is time for now is that this Christ-centered, spirit-empowered church will be a witness. Literally, the Greek there is a martus, where we get our word martyr. I don't think that's exactly what they had in mind. <laughs> I'm fairly certain they were thinking, when do we get the good life? When do we get safety? When do we get security? When, when do I get my little plot of land in the suburbs and my 2.5 kids? Like, when do I get that? And Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's not what's coming around the corner. What's coming around the corner is you will be empowered to be my witnesses, my martyrs. And so th this is how the kingdom of God on earth is advanced. Jesus doesn't pass out any swords. He doesn't pass out any spears. He doesn't pass out any, uh, any cabinet positions. He doesn't explain how they're going to use diplomacy and military prowess. He says, you're going to be a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered witness. And you're going to do that, yeah, in Israel, right? Jerusalem, Judea. But it, it's not going to stay there. It's actually going to go out to Samaria, which they hated the Samaritans. They didn't want to be around the Samaritans. They did everything they could to stay away from the Samaritans. Jesus said, no, 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 no. No, you're going to be a witness to them and even to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. <laughs> right? Now, this is a mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting moment for the apostles, the sent ones. Right? I think they liked their title at first. Ooh, apostles, sent ones. And Jesus says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go bring the gospel to Samaria and the ends of the earth. Oh, sent ones. That's what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. This is who you are. Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, witnessing community sent to all of the nations. Now, this is different than any religion up to this point, really, ever. Right? Most, most religions... Uh, in their world, were somehow connected to a plot of land and a people group. I mean, even, even they're thinking about Israel. Even though when you read the Old Testament, you can see that God is the God of all nations. God loves, you know, He's, he's reaching out to everyone. He, but, but their thinking was, no, God is the, the God of Israel. 
And in this moment, Jesus is saying, no, God is the God over all. And, and I'm sending you to all nations. This goes to all cultures, all cultures. And for them, that was a huge a paradigm shift. Uh, the gospel is supracultural. Right? It, it transcends culture. This is so different than any other religion. It is beyond culture, although it's communicated in culture. We can't communicate anything without culture. You've got, you got to have a language to communicate with. Right then and there, you're talking, uh, you're using some kind of, a, of, of culture. The songs we sing, are, they're cultural, right? There, there's a culture that goes with that. Uh, you, you can be a loud culture, a boisterous culture. You can be a more, a quieter culture, a contemplative culture. The, the, these things are cultural, but, but the agreed-upon truth claims of the gospel those things transcend culture. They are supra-cultural. And, and, and again, there's, there's no religion like this. Other religions use culture to bond one another together. Think, think about uh, the robes that are worn by a Tibetan monk. That's, that's culture, right? The yarmulke worn by a Jewish man, that, that's culture. The, the, the black covering worn by a, a Sunni Muslim woman, these... These things are cultural, and they are part of the package of practicing those religions. Christianity doesn't have anything like that or shouldn't have anything like that. Right? Now, these cultural trappings can bond us together. I mean, there's a few Patriots fans here, right? You got your T-shirts, and uh, you, you got your cheers, Right? You, there's these cultural things that, that help bond you together as a, a team, but I would say there's nothing about the Patriots that transcends culture. I'm sorry. I, I know some of you are upset about that, but it's a, everything about it is a cultural thing, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like That's fun, and it, and it, and it bonds us together, but, but not like the gospel. The gospel transcends culture. And again, you may be thinking, now, wait, wait a minute, I think Christianity does have culture. And this is where we get in trouble when we try to smuggle culture in to the gospel along with it, right? And, and so, you know, again, we have to have, we have to use, pick a language, right? But not, not all sermons have to be preached in Chinese. Some can be preached in English. That, that's okay, right? Uh, but, but the gospel is the gospel, whether it's being preached in Chinese or preached in English. Uh, the, the way we sing, the instruments we use, right? You can actually worship Jesus with an organ. You can do that. You can worship Jesus a cappella. You can worship Jesus with drums and a guitar. These things are cultural, but, but they are, are, are means of, of experiencing the gospel. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting to me when we talk about worship style, for instance, which is a cultural thing, okay? Uh, some people will come to me and say, wow, Sunday was really too loud. It was just really, it was just kind of overwhelming and really loud, and I was having a hard time worship. And, and then the ne next person, you know, that's talking to me about worship is like, man, I really wish we'd just let go and really celebrate and go crazy and have a, a great time of praise and partying for Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I hear you both, and I, it's culture, right? 
And what, what the beautiful thing that can happen is, is that the expression of the gospel can then become transcultural. And different cultures bring Christ-exalting parts and pieces of their culture, and they help form the culture of a particular local church. And it's a powerful witness to the gospel, that, that the gospel is supracultural, that it transcends culture. And, and because of that gospel, many of us who would never would have been in fellowship with each other are now in fellowship with each other. And there's challenges to that and th- things that are hard about that, but it's also this beautiful picture of the truth of the gospel. I, I know there are a number of you, you come here on, on Sunday mornings and participate in, in, in the church, and there are things about like the Sunday morning thing, you're just like, man, I just wish it was different, I wish the style was different, but you stick in here because you love the gospel. Because that transcends for you, what's most important. And again, this is so important to understand this in terms of our identity as the church, that we are this Christ-centered, the crucified, resurrected, Christ-centered community, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of that reality to all the nations, starting in our own backyard, moving out throughout all the ends of the earth. Now this, honestly, this kind of vision seems doomed to fail in this moment in Acts, if we're really honest. I mean, the people he is talking to haven't been 100 miles from their home, really. I mean, that's the furthest they've been. They have very little understanding of the world. They don't even know what the ends of the earth are. And so I think this next little moment here, starting with verse 9, is pretty critical for any, it's an encouragement to them that this can actually be pulled off. Verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the ascension of Jesus. So think about this. He casts this vision to the the apostles and he says, you're going to be this Christ-centered, you're going to be spirit-empowered, you're going to be my witnesses And you're going to not just do that in Israel, you're going to move out all throughout the nations. And they're like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. And then Jesus is like, watch this. (laughs) And he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Now what he's saying is, I am a cosmic Christ. What, What he shows them in that moment, he says to them in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission where he says that, uh, he, he, he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has said that to them, and then he shows it to them. And he's letting them know, I am a cosmic Christ. I am over everything. And they're going to need to hear that. They're going to need to remember that, because there's going to be some dark days 
most of those men that have watched that, they're going to lose their lives being witnesses of the gospel. And in those days, they're going to need to remember, no, my king is king over all. No matter what happens, even if what I'm experiencing right now doesn't seem like the good life, I am centered on my Savior King. He is everything to me. I will follow him to my death because I know he's got this. He's got a way bigger button on his desk than any Roman emperor, any, any person in authority, any persecutor. He is above all. And he lets them know, I got this. We're going to do this. Notice that when he says you are going to be filled with the whole, you're gonna be, the Spirit's going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses, he's, he's prophesying. It's, it's not so much a command. He's saying this is what is going to happen, church. He doesn't say, now, I really hope you guys, when you get the Spirit, please, oh, please, oh, please, would you go and be witnesses and go to all the nations? He, he doesn't say it that way. He says, it will happen. And then he shows them that he is the cosmic king, Jesus, and he will bring it to pass. And he has been doing that. And he continues to do that today. So let's think about what, what to do with this sermon, right? The application of this sermon Number one, center yourself on Christ. Center yourself on Christ. Uh, the church through the ages has oftentimes used creeds to help itself center on Christ. And the oldest creed is known as the Apostles' Creed. And so this is a portion of the Apostles' Creed that is read in many churches week in, week out, week in, week out. Now, I grew up reading this, saying this creed, uh, not really understanding it, not really believing it until later, later in life. But it is one of the ways that the church declares we're centered on Christ. So why don't we, we say this? Why don't we stand and say it? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Maybe seated. Notice it's his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Declared by the church, week in and week out, week in and week out. We are, are worshiping a, a cosmic Christ who is above all. When we sing those songs, we're worshiping a cosmic Christ who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's got it. He's got it. He knows how to reach the campuses here. He knows how to reach the valley. He knows how to reach uh, New England. He knows how to reach this uh, nation. He knows how to reach the nation's around the world. He, he's got this. He's got this. And we merely need to yield to the work of the powerful Holy Spirit that He has sent in order for us to be His 
witnesses, to be Christ-centered. Now, if you've never centered yourself on Christ, this morning would be a great time to do that. Perhaps you've been centered on the good life. Perhaps you even came here thinking, my life's not so good and I need some Jesus to get my life good. It's not what we're teaching here because it's not true. What we're calling you to is faith in a Savior King, Jesus, and to center your life by faith. Starting now and throughout your days, throughout all of eternity. And you know what will come as a byproduct? A very good life. Probably not exactly what you're thinking, <laughs> but it will be good. It will be eternally good. So center yourself on Christ. Number two, rely on the Holy Spirit. Our default is, is really to rely on our own strength. So we're constantly having to be reminded, no, 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 this, this life we live is by faith. That's just another way of saying rely on the Holy Spirit. You're living by faith. Yes, it's very active. Yes, you're obeying. Yes, you're doing. But you're doing it in a way that's this actively passive thing called faith. And it's a constant reliance on the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that, that, that's helpful to me to, to continue to rely on the Holy Spirit is to pray. We're praying. We're, we're relying on the Holy Spirit. And, and sometimes my prayer is very short. It's just, help, help. That's it. <laughs> and I'm driving somewhere, dealing with something, worried about something, feeling anxiety, whatever it is. Help! Just relying on God's Spirit to empower us to, to be His witnesses. And, and to be reminded, thirdly, that our King is cosmic. It's so easy to get discouraged, isn't it? To see what, what, what our eyes can see in, the, in, the, in, the, in this uh, material world and uh, geopolitical stuff and things in our own life and, and to forget that heaven and earth right now are disintegrated because of sin, right? But that Jesus is coming back. And, and He is going to restore this, this, this kingdom fully. But in this in-between time, our job in order to advance the kingdom is to be His witnesses. We're reminded of these realities every time we come to this table. Fairly certain this is what Jesus wanted us to remember. This is why He gave us this very simple thing. And, and this is one of those exterior things that we, we do as a church, no matter where we are. And, and it looks different the way different churches do it, but, but if you're a church, you break bread and you take a cup. And you do that to remember some things, to remember the crucified, risen Christ. Right? And that's why Jesus says, he says, take bread and break it. And then remember, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, every, every church that's a, that's a, that's a church, right? this is one of the signs of, of the church, not the only sign of a true church, but one of the signs of the church is taking this bread and breaking it and then taking a cup and re remembering Jesus' words that, that, that this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So he wants us to, to keep 
going back, swinging back, and centering ourselves on the crucified, risen Christ over and over and over and over again. Think about the things that he institutes for us to do as the church, to do this communion, to do baptism. They both point to Christ, centering on Christ, centering on Christ. And then he says, when he's explaining this to the disciples, would you do this until I come back? And so he's letting them know that the crucified, resurrected Christ is also the ascended Christ. And that he is over all, both seen and unseen. He has all authority over heaven and earth. And that King Jesus will return and he will restore, not just Israel, but restore the universe as the king over all. That's what we're remembering as we come up here to take the bread and take the cup. So if you're a Christ follower, if, if he is your savior, he is your king, we want to invite you to come and dine with your king. If you've become a Christian in the last five minutes, as you've heard the gospel and decided to center yourself on him in faith, uh, then we invite you to come to the, the table. If you're here and you're beginning to investigate the faith, we're really glad that you're here. But if you know you're not there yet, you're not centered on Christ yet, not following Jesus as your king, then I want to encourage you during this time to just remain in your seat, to think about what you're hearing, to pray, and then to seek someone out and have a conversation about your questions or things that you are wondering about. I'll be down front after the service. I'd be happy uh, to talk about it. Or if there's someone in the service, perhaps it's a friend that could have that conversation, seek them out as well. So I'm going to pray, and then when you're ready, you can come down and take communion. Lord, thank you that you have saved us, you have forgiven our sins, but you've done more than that. You've ushered us into a kingdom. And just as you gifted and called those apostles and sent them out, Lord, you, you, you give us a gifting, you give us a calling, and you give us a place of service in your kingdom to bring glory to you, our ascended king, and to bring the good of the gospel to those around us. So, Lord, as we take this uh, bread and cup, may we be reminded of both the cost that you paid for us, but also uh, the new life that you've ushered us into. Uh, God, would your Holy Spirit work in us and in us as a community as we take this together? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.